many of us who are first or second generation liturgical scholars in our tradition, we're taught in the discipline using other traditions books, and there's that tug to become more like everyone else. And so in this book, Emerged Out of Conversation, we're asked, what do we have to offer for ecumenical conversation? And then uh, one of the things we talked about was liturgical authority. I'm feeling like as free church scholars, we might have something to to learn, certainly as we have been from our colleagues, but also something to contribute to this question about worship and power. Welcome to season five of Public Worship and the Christian Life, a podcast produced by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. This season highlights the new Worship and Witness book series by CICW and published through Cascade Books, an imprint of Wiffenstock. The Worship and Witness series seeks to foster a rich, interdisciplinary conversation on the theology and practice of public worship, a conversation that will be integrative and expansive. CICW staff member Noel Snyder, also one of the series editors, and Kristen Verholst talk with the authors of the first seven books in this series. We are pleased you've joined us in this conversation, and we look forward to sharing this learning with you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Public Worship and the Christian Life Podcast. I'm Kristen Verholst from the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. My guests today are Sarah Kathleen Johnson and Andrew Weimer. Sarah is Assistant Professor of Liturgy and Pastoral Theology at St. Paul University in Ottawa, and Andrew is Associate Professor of Preaching and Worship at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston. They are co-editors of a new book, Worship and Power, Liturgical Authority in Free Church Traditions one of the volumes in the Worship and Witness series with Cascade Books that the Worship Institute has been sponsoring and the topic of our conversation today. So Sarah and Andrew, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having us. So let's, let's start at the beginning. What's the story behind the book? Why did you two come together and want to put it together? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll start, Sarah, if that's okay with you. Uh, I suspect that there's stories behind the book. So I'll give my version and then Sarah can jump in. Um, but I think the real story behind the book is the emergence and organization of, you know, a really solid group of free church scholars of worship um, in uh, liturgical studies. And also here thinking um, in the North American Academy of Liturgy. Um, in which folk from the free church have been, you know, a significant minority for a long time, not not equally represented alongside some other traditions. So and th- this book project emerged out of out of this group and asking questions that were really exciting for many of us who are first or second generation liturgical scholars in our tradition. Uh, we're, we're taught in the discipline using other traditions books. And and there's that tug to become more like everyone else. And so in this book, Merge Out of Conversation, we're asked, what do we have to offer for ecumenical conversation? And then uh, one of the things we talked about was liturgical authority. And, and here we are years later, 
uh, able to talk about an artifact uh, that represents that that emerging group. Yeah, so I would definitely affirm that um, that emerging uh, group of free church scholars, and especially Andrew's role in convening uh, a meeting surrounding the annual meeting of the North American Academy of Liturgy that brought this free church group together uh, for the first time six or seven years ago now. For me personally, um, maybe I'll reflect on it on, on that level, having heard some of the shared story. I've often found myself, as many free church liturgical scholars do, at that intersection in dialogue with other traditions, um, studying in Roman Catholic University, studying Anglicans as the subject of much of my research, um, and even attending the Anglican meeting, uh, equivalent to this free church meeting at the North American Academy of Liturgy, and realizing in those contexts that we were navigating questions of power and authority very, very differently in the Mennonite church, uh, and especially in my work on Mennonite worship resourcing at the denominational level in Canada and the United States, and just finding myself asking very different types of questions than my Anglican and Episcopal colleagues were in their, their meeting about prayer book revisions, and, and feeling like, as free church scholars, we might have something to to learn certainly as we have been from our our um, our colleagues, but also something to contribute to this question about worship and power. The book is new, uh, just out there, but what has been some of the initial response and some of the feedback you're hearing, even maybe from some of the chapter authors? Well, it's it's been good to hear um, a positive reception, certainly um, about the value of collaborating with one another across very different traditions within the pre-church world, different social locations, different geographic and national contexts, that those relationships and, and reading each other's work and critiquing each other's work has been very valuable. And then celebrating the publication of one another's work too and being able to draw on it in our, our courses uh, and in our own scholarship in different settings. Um, this really does fill uh, a bit of a, a vacuum in terms of uh, free church liturgical scholarship and also addresses this really essential topic of power. And, and I do hear that both of those components of this publication are, are really being quite positively received. Um, in my own my own Mennonite context, it's meant a lot to hear from hear from some of those first generation Mennonite liturgical scholars, those who have gone before me in denominational worship resourcing and in the Mennonite Theological Academy, read the, the two Mennonite chapters here and say, yes, this really rings true to our experience. It's really important to be naming this, um, to be interrogating it, to be asking these kinds of questions, and, and to be starting a, a different kind of conversation about worship. So that that has been um, significant personally. Yeah, I just add on uh, to what Sarah has said, right? So that for those who are outside of academia, uh, the speed of conversation in academia is glacial. So this book came out in March. And so as a seventh month, seven month old book, um, you know, the you know, like book reviews, more formal engagements really still emerging. Um, but the, the two themes that I think echo uh, what Sarah has shared are um, that folk are excited because they can find themselves represented in this volume in ways that they have not uh, necessarily been able to find representation um, in conversations around worship. And then the the ways in which this volume invites deep conversation on power and authority in our communal worship and some and some of us we come from traditions that don't naturally think of or critically address power or authority um, in our worship
by power in the title of the book. And then I also want to work in a definition for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the free churches, what that what that means. Power is obviously a very contested term in itself that is defined in many different ways. And we did not impose a single definition on all of our authors. So contributors use it in different ways tr- as well that, that ring true to their traditions and to the theoretical sources they're engaging. But at the most basic level, power simply refers to the capacity to act or to influence. Um, it's pervasive, it's present in all human relationships, it's always shifting, and it can be employed in ways that are either positive or negative. So often power has this kind of negative connotation and that's not what we're looking at here. We're just looking at how power-laden relationships are part of Christian worship as a social phenomenon. Of course, in worship, we also acknowledge the power of God and and experience God's power at work within and among us as well. But especially to to step back and ask, who are the people, the individuals, the communities, the the larger social entities that are acting and influencing our worship um, at these different levels? And then how about uh, the free churches? What helps someone who isn't familiar with that term? What what are you talking about there? Well, hopefully what we did is breathing some some fresh air into a conversation about the free church. Um, Sarah and I really, in our definition, stretched uh, more, uh, you know, a free church so it could fit more broadly, as well as allow for... Um, sort of ecumenical overlap so that the 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 way that we define the free church still doesn't render the characteristics of the free church as like the sole possession of free churches but they these still are opportunities each of these dimensions that we pull out to connect with folk who may have a different perspective on those but still find those in their own tradition so the the three themes we pulled out are separation from civic intervention which is a real theme throughout definitions historical definitions of the free church and um, without which, um, you know, we we might not be taken seriously, right? So this is a core part of what the free church is. And then also there's the historical thinking as well, like historical residues of civic intervention so that um, typically churches that no longer have formal affiliations with a nation state per se, um, are, but are historically emerged from a tradition that once had that, are not categorized um, as part of the free church. And then we emphasize local autonomy as our second characteristic, and that's the idea that um, free churches have typically been very resistant to a centralized ecclesial body telling the local uh, congregation what to do or how to do something. And then we, we talk about uh, the third characteristic is voluntarism. So this emphasis on earnest, willing participation of the individual as well as the community, trying to avoid coercion uh, as much as possible. So in our definition, what we've done is we've carved out a broader space. In the introduction, we do a little bit of a survey, and our introduction allows for us to see the free church in evangelicalism, in mainline Protestantism, excuse me, and Pentecostalism. So um, so that's really what makes it unique is that breadth. These markers are, are something that we frame in terms of spectra. So it's not all or nothing. Each one exists to varying degrees in different individual local communities and different traditions. Um, that allows for, for us to kind of take this on a case-by-case basis in terms of thinking about what free churches are. And there are some really obvious examples 
of free churches, and then there are more ambiguous examples. And then one of the helpful things about this definition is that it also allows us to think about how some churches that are not historically free churches might be exhibiting more of these characteristics of free churches in our contemporary context, where there is an increasing emphasis on separation from the state, where many denominations are operating more congregationally than they have historically, where there's a declining uh, religious authority, um, where individuals are, are exercising more freedom of choice in terms of where, where they worship. And as we see those shifts happening societally across traditions, being able to speak about the, the historical traits of the free church in this ways might allow us to, to think about how free church conversations about worship can contribute to these broader ecumenical conversations about worship as well. So what was uh, challenging or maybe exciting, satisfying about bringing together your contributors and the different topics then that they wrote about? Well, I think the most obvious challenge uh, would be that this was largely compiled during COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so there were all of those stressors that were placed on everyone's lives um, and also restricted our ability to gather in person as a group. Uh, so, so I hadn't noted that originally, but it just occurs to me now that that really did shape our work. Um, I also hear like the satisfying and the challenging as linked in ways. Um, so we had an array of incredible diversity here in this volume, uh, denomination diversity, diversity of social locations, and yet the vast diversity of, you know, the decentralized local free churches so many different traditions, um, we had to always keep in mind that we only had a small group, really, in the volume, and to keep in mind who's not here as well, and and to consider, uh, keep, the, keep that uh, ever-present in our minds. And then I think one of the other challenges that we addressed very early in the conversation before we started writing the book is that there really is a challenge uh, we've talked already about second generation liturgical scholars in our traditions. And, you know, there's a challenge to claiming your space <laughs> and to articulating the value of your tradition um, within broader discourse. And and I think we rose to that challenge. And I think that what we have is uh, really satisfying because we, we claimed that and we didn't back off from that. I, I would certainly affirm that. Just from an editorial perspective, there's something so deeply satisfying about reading someone's work and reflecting on it very deeply and reflecting on it in conversation with others, both in the ways that we workshopped each other's work and also as the book was starting to come together. And then to think about how to, to help someone else articulate their own contribution that much more clearly or in the, as part of this larger conversation. And there's something that's just very, very satisfying about that that as an editor uh, on of individual chapters. And then I think another, another satisfying piece too was we thought about a lot of different ways to organize this material. And there are many, many ways that it could be organized. Um, but as, as we sat with it uh, for longer and continued to work with it, the, the overall structure of the, the book came out in terms of thinking about the ways that free church worship can contest power in society. And then naming the ways that power is negotiated in ecclesial institutions that are characterized by this congregational polity. 
And then considering the potential for individuals to claim power through their participation in liturgical practices. And that structure and how, how it wove together these very different contexts and traditions and experiences and even styles of writing into a, a more cohesive narrative. I think arriving at that point of feeling like, yes, we're telling a dozen different stories here, but we're also contributing to a common, common project um, was a, an important moment for this book. you each contributed a chapter would you be willing just to share the what you found especially um yeah deeply personally satisfying about the the works that you contributed a pleasure to collaborate with andrew on the introduction too i think we did some some good mm-hmm. thinking together there about about some of the definitional questions that you're asking about some of the larger goals of this book and, and the place of free church liturgical scholarship so that was really um a, a joy to work on um, in terms of my own chapter, it is looking at uh, power in the process of shaping a denominational hymnal and worship book for Mennonites in Canada and the United States, and using uh, some critical theory from Amy Allen to really unpack the many, many layers of power that were involved in the negotiations around shaping this central resource for a very, very diffuse congregational tradition. Um, so that that's, was uh, the focus of my chapter and was in some ways a way to process my work on that project and to do so in conversation with colleagues and in conversation with some really rich theoretical resources. And that will hopefully help others also interrogate some of the, the often invisible uh, practices of power that might be at play in shaping some of the resources they're drawing on in their liturgical practices. Yeah, I, I echo what Sarah said about the introduction. That's actually the piece that I'm proudest of. <laughs> Uh, in relationship to this volume and that I, I'm going to use most broadly because um, it provides some helpful definitions and boundaries for conversations um, that, that I think could be tugged into um, conversations even that don't necessarily directly focus in on power and authority. Uh, as far as my chapter, you know, it's always a gift uh, to be able to receive feedback from others um, who are just as passionate about you as you about uh, scholarship, about Christian worship, as well as about justice. And so uh, the the conversation was rich. Um, and it also, uh, um, you know, I'm, you know, even my chapter raises the question of free, but how free, <laughs> you know, of um, even for free churches. Um, how can we live more fully into um, uh, maybe what Ron Allen in his chapter calls the reign of God, mm-hmm. um, a different alternative way of being um, that is more just. And then I have to say, too, uh, just uh, at the end here, that uh, collaborative work is hard um, and very rewarding at times, but also very challenging at times. And it was just a, it was a joy to work with Sarah um, as a co-editor because um, when you can be in a collaborative relationship where you're both bringing equal levels of intensity and commitment and energy, um, it's, it's, it can be really rewarding. And so this is uh, a moment of collaboration that was uh, certainly we had a challenging task, but it was very satisfying. I see this very much uh, that your hope is this gets picked up as a supplemental text in different courses, perhaps. And, and it's, uh, you know, a beautiful um 
testimony, as you say, to this um, part of the field that is has lots of um, movement, but has been maybe more uh, still emerging and on the sides. So what, what words of hope or encouragement would you offer to those scholars, young scholars who are in this area, those teaching now, and um, ways to bless them as they begin um, their own scholarship and work perhaps related to this topic? Well, I hope this book provides one resource for helping free church students understand and shape worship in their own traditions in the classroom. I know my own classrooms are increasingly diverse at each of the theological schools that I've I've taught at. Um, there are often pre-church students there who are primarily engaging resources from other traditions. So to find ways to uh, provide resources that can allow them to engage within within a free church space, drawing on the voices of free church scholars and in that process to see themselves as people who can also contribute to this type of liturgical scholarship. And, and I see that that presence. Um, only increasing as as free church traditions grow worldwide, as as they are increasingly uh, worship practices that are associated with free church traditions are increasingly embraced across other traditions as well. Practices that might be more informal or expressive. Um, that that this is is an increasing need in our, our theological schools. Um, so I, I hope that this this is one resource, but that it also inspires the creation of other other resources um, beyond this volume as free church. Scholars continue to engage with the discipline of liturgical studies. Yeah, that resonates what what Sarah said quite a bit. I would I would say I would hope from the from this that uh, you know young scholars, emerging scholars, uh, could uh, see an example of honoring their tradition and deeply engaging their own tradition in ways that appreciate the uniqueness of it. Um, and in so doing, then maybe can even be better ecumenical conversation partners because they're bringing the fullness of themselves um, to the to the conversation, which can lead to richer dialogue, you know, uh, clearer juxtapositions, you know, a whole host of rich conversation. There was one thing that one of our contributors, Dr. Chelsea Yarbrough, mentioned in one of our early conversations, and I think she was quoting a relative, but she said that power unnamed is power abused or something like that. It was a variant of that, perhaps. And I think that what this book, I hope what this book does as well is helps cue us to power and and, and being intentional about how we talk about it. Uh, and then when we've got it out there and we, we're looking at this thing and thinking about it, then we can be ethically minded. Um, and think about how do we handle this power well? Um, how do we handle this power in ways that attend to, um, you know, systems of power that that oppress and marginalize uh, certain groups of people? So um, hopefully in the naming of power itself, um, that invites uh, further richer conversation about how we can be more just and then I, I think as well, so this is my, my personal uh, bias and vocation, is we also used a Fannie Lou Hamer quote in the, the introduction, and, and it's the, until I'm free, you're, you're not free either. Mm. Um, and so just keeping in mind, even for even if as we claim this free church title uh, or name, that, um, that that free is emerging, that free is fluid. And that free is contested. And so hopefully through this volume, um, folk could could begin to think more critical about how their own tradition 
could help us live into a more just future. I know that was very much on Sarah and I's minds uh, when we included that quote. So may we all be free. It is a wonderful book, and it clearly leans right into the one of the goals of the series, which is to foster rich interdisciplinary conversations that are just keep, you know, pushing people, stretching people. And it's, it's a wonderful example of that. So thank you both. The book, again, is Worship and Power, Liturgical Authority in Free Church Traditions. And Sarah, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you.